uh, and welcome to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival. Thank you for being here. Uh, I am Mon Bathija, transportation reporter for the Tribune. This is the first of five panels on our transportation track today, all of which will be in this room. Uh, some quick housekeeping. Lunch will be held on the main mall starting at 12.15. Uh, the day will conclude with a reception at the AT&T Center at 5.30. And for those who want it, there are shuttles available to provide transport between all the venues. And now for our first panel, the fight over rail. We'll spend the next hour delving into the ambitious yet controversial project to build a privately funded high-speed rail line. And we have the perfect panel of group of panelists to discuss the project and the state of rail at Texas in general. We'll make sure to leave a few minutes at the end for uh, audience Q&A. So first, let me introduce our panel. Just to my right, Tim Keith in July was appointed chief executive of Texas Central Partners, a private company developing a bullet train between Dallas and Houston. Previously, he served as the chief investment officer of HKS Capital Advisors and as global chief exec executive officer of Reef Deutsche Bank Infrastructure Investments. Tim currently serves on the Westmount College Board of Trustees. And next to him is Kyle Workman, president of Texans Against High Speed Rail. He was a general contractor for 15 years before selling his family business, Workman Commercial Construction, and starting his own construction consulting firm. He currently serves on the board of the Central Texas chapter of the Folds of Honor Foundation and the advisory committee of the Texas Homeschool Coalition. And next to him is State Senator Sylvia Garcia, a Houston Democrat who has represented Senate District 6 since 2013. She is on several Senate committees, Education, Intergovernmental Relations, Transportation, and Veteran Affairs and Military Installations. She previously served as Director and Presiding Judge of the Houston Municipal System and was later elected Houston City Comptroller. In 2002, she was elected to the Harris County Commissioner's Court. Next to her is State Representative John Ray. He's a Waxahachie Republican who was elected to represent House District 10 in 2014. He is a member of both the Ways and Means Committee and the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee. He works as a lawyer focusing on transactional and banking law and is a co-owner of Town Square Title, a title company offering title insurance and escrow services. And last but not least, Bill Meadows is a former Fort Worth City Councilman and State Transportation Commissioner. He is currently the head of the Commission for High-Speed Rail in the Dallas-Fort Worth region, a job he's held since the Commission's creation in 2014. He also serves as Chairman Emeritus of Hub International Insurance Services and was a former Chairman of the North, North Texas High-Speed Rail Commission and is on the Board of Directors at DFW Airport. I've never been described as being part of the perfect panel. I think you said Well, this is a big project, and it's, it's um, been evolving for a number of 
years, we started our environmental studies with the Federal Railroad Administration in 2014. We're about halfway through that process, and it, it, it uh, is also a uh, safety permit process going on at the same time. I come through on half and half. Sorry. See if that's any better. Um, uh, so the project is uh, a big idea for Texas. We're moving Texans through Texas safely and quickly, connecting two of the largest metropolitan areas uh, in the country, and obviously in the state, almost half of the state's populations in those two metro areas. And we're working hard to um, uh, make this a successful initiative using private capital. This is Texas. Sorry, I'm stick with you for a little longer. Uh, are you one of the controversial aspects of the project is how you're going to get the land for uh, negotiating with landowners and possibly using eminent domain? Uh, do you have a sense of when that is going to start? Once we finish our environmental study this fall, if we hit the next milestone this fall, we will be able to identify the preferred final alignment that will allow us to start talking to landowners. It's a very personal topic when you touch somebody's property. The responsibility we take very seriously. And we're going to meet with each landowner face to face and talk about our project, the impact on their property, and work hard to understand their concerns and work and negotiate to purchase everything. All right, well, I want to move right to the head, to, to Kyle, who is leading a group that formed specifically to oppose this project. Uh, Kyle, talk a bit about how, your group and what your main objections are to. Uh, Okay, thank you for the opportunity. Again, I'm Kyle Workman. I am the president of Texas Against High Speed Rail. We're a grassroots volunteer-led organization um, that was uh, constituted in, in order to oppose this particular project as it's being presented by Texas Central. Um, we have a, a myriad of concerns, uh, and they break into several different categories. But primarily, uh, when you start with the, the, what we call the primary issues, we have the concern over the inevitable taxpayer subsidy, um, and as well as the use of eminent domain for the private gain of a private company. And uh, you know, we can talk in greater detail about each of those, but when you, when you talk about the inevitable taxpayer subsidy, from our perspective, given the HSR worldwide is heavily subsidized, uh, we believe that that is the inevitable conclusion here. Uh, and, and if you look at that, uh, that fact and you consider that even if it starts private, it probably won't end private. And when you consider the, the bailouts we've seen from Solyndra or GM, you can, you can pretty well uh, ascertain that the likely conclusion will be that we take that project over as either a state or a federal government. And from our perspective, we need to have that conversation up front. Uh, and know that we are, that, that is a risk that we are all taking. If we thought that uh, there was a 99% chance of success and a 1% chance of failure, it would be different. But in this case, I think the odds are completely reversed. Um, there's a 1% chance of success and a 99% chance of failure from a financial perspective, maybe not from a moving people perspective, maybe not from a safety perspective, but from a financial perspective. And, and using eminent domain to capture people's property at less than property is worth to them for a project that is likely to fail is problematic for me and all the people that I represent. Uh, Tim, if you could respond to the issue of kind of financing and 
Sure, sir. I, I do take uh, objection to the concept of, of, of uh, challenges on the financial side. This is a project that's unique in the world and that is known to us. It's known to everybody who's studied high school grad. This is a private enterprise solution, and it is driven by commercial aspirations. There's pent-up demand from consumers in Houston and Dallas Fort Worth. There's economic uh, opportunities that are being missed because Texans aren't freely and moving as freely as they need to in and around Texas. In addition, this is private risk being taken by private individuals, and our investors are bearing the risk, not the government and not the state of Texas. If you look at a recent example, Encore Energy um, has had financial troubles. It's a major Some would argue that powering Texans is even more important than moving Texans. The private investors and the blenders that financed Encore had those risks, are living with those risks, and the private markets are solving the problems, and the state has not intervened, we've not nationalized our state. The state has not taken over our energy. Senator Garcia, uh, you have been a supporter of the project, as have um, a lot of lawmakers from Houston and Dallas, whereas communities in between, have, you've seen more opposition. Can you talk a little bit about why you're supporting the project and what do you think the impact will be if it actually happens? Well, I mean, this is, first of all, a great big state. And it grows every, every day, and people are coming to our state every single day. Uh, and we know that the population of the state is going to probably nearly double than and we've got to really look at all the options. It's not just about the roads, it's not just about buses, it's not just about airports. It's about looking at all the things. You know, I always like to say that we probably can never get everybody to get along, but we do need them to get around. Uh, because that's what we need to focus on, and I think we have a responsibility to really look at the big picture of what we're going to do today, and where we're going to be by 2040, 2050, and how we're going to get people around. And I think one of the options, of course, is our speed rail. I think we've seen that rail has succeeded in, in Houston, it's succeeded in Dallas. Um, I don't think that I've traveled on a bullet train, so I've traveled on a bullet train, but we've spent in other countries. It really works. I mean, I barely had enough time to pull out my book to read uh, when I was already at my destination. I mean, it, it, uh, it's really a good way to move people around. You mentioned Houston and Dallas. Those rails are public. Do you have any concerns about a private firm building this? No, I line? think it's better for us. I mean, if you look again on the example of Houston, we just uh, cut the ribbon on the uh, international terminal at Southwest Airlines. They built it. I mean, the city of Houston did not spend that much money other than private facility permits, et cetera, but they put all the money there. There's nothing wrong with private investment as long as there's accountability. viewed as aimed at this project and trying to kind of stop it from moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you filed that and if you have 
plans to do that next session? Yeah, I, I filed a couple of bills and participated in a couple of other legislative efforts. <coughs> primarily designed uh, to either inhibit the building of the rail or to certainly make sure that those of us in the uh, seven or eight counties, depending on the alignment between Dallas and Harris counties, have a seat at the table and an ability to express our concerns about uh, the project and how it would impact our areas. If I could uh, interject on this issue of use of private funds versus not using private funds, uh, one of the concerns that I, I know that some of us who are looking at this, this project have is that uh, this is a highly specialized single-purpose infrastructure asset. So if it is built using private funds but it ultimately fails, it will be an asset or infrastructure that really cannot be that really cannot be uh, repurposed for another use. And it also uh, could, uh, it, it would be difficult to mothball. So that really, that really means that government has to step in to save it if it fails from a private perspective. So that's really uh, one of the issues that we're looking at. Yes, uh, this group is intended to go into it with private, with private investment. Yeah, should we just turn off our mics? Yeah. No, he's saying he's saying no. Don't turn them off. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, you mentioned um, the fact that this can't be repurposed. So I mean, freight lines, freight freight tracks are, are private. So is, is, in your mind, that's okay because another freight company can take it over? No, I, I want to make sure, which a lot of people don't understand, it's critically important to understand the nature of a high-speed rail. High-speed rail is built to where it has no grade crossings. The freight lines that you're used to seeing and that come through your town, uh, they have grade crossings. You know, you pull, up to the, you pull up to the train tracks, there's a dinging red light, maybe an arm comes down, you wait for the train to pass, and then you continue. Way. The way this rail will be built, there will be no grade crossings. It either has to be built up on a bridge the entire length of the track, or it has to be built on an elevated berm that will then have a fence that keeps uh, grade cross, keeps, keeps both livestock, wildlife, people from crossing at grade. So anywhere that a roadway meets this rail line, there has to be an overpass or an underpass. So it, it's, it's different. This is a different animal. And uh, because of that, uh, it, it's going to be constructed different, differently. It impacts property values differently. It impacts the surrounding land differently. And that's a large uh, part of the concern. Uh, Bill, you're working on a public effort to extend this hypothetical Dallas-Houston line from Dallas to Fort Worth. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that's going and, and what, kind of how that came about, why? That's it. Amon, thank you. I, you know, let's, let's, let's put this in this perspective, and let's really think, I mean, we're talking about today, but I think this conversation really should be focused on the future of the state. That's really what this conversation should be about. And the fact is that the area I live in has six and a half million people today. 
Six and a half million people. It's one of it's the fourth largest mega region in, in the United States of America, followed by Houston. And we could have this conversation as to who's fourth or fifth, but it doesn't really matter. And the, what, the, what matters is that this state has grown considerably and continues to grow today, and we have extraordinarily large challenges meeting the transportation needs of the citizens that we all represent. And the fact is, the fact is that the mega region I'm describing, where I live, we spent, fortunately, some $16.5 billion working with the North Texas Tollway Authority and TxDOT and the private sector in leveraging public funds to deliver over $16 billion in infrastructure development over the last decade. Actually, a shorter time period than that. And we're still failing. We're still failing to meet the transportation infrastructure needs of the citizens. And so you begin to look at what is this state then therefore going to look like when my region has over 10 million people, when the Houston area has over 10 million people, when the I-35 corridor is fully developed out, and we have a transportation agency and a state that does not have the ability, even, as, even assuming Proposition 7 passes, we still are billions of dollars less than what we will need to meet the transportation infrastructure needs of the state. And the fact is that notwithstanding the issues and concerns that are raised with regard to advancing high-speed rail generally in the state, those are legitimate concerns that need to be addressed. It is all part of the implementation of, of challenging, big challenging projects. They're always going to be there. But this is a mode of transportation that would enable us potentially to truly meet the transportation infrastructure needs that we are going to have. We already have and we are going to have. And so, you know, my project is, uh, the commission is the creation of the Texas Transportation Commission, serving in an advisory capacity focused on, on route. We're halfway through the environmental, we're tracking TCR, it's a leveraging opportunity. You know, this project that I'm involved with, uh, again, advising the Texas Transportation Commission is going to be undoubtedly the same sort of uh, a financial model that we've seen with regard to some of the big public uh, uh, highway projects, public-private partnership, a lot of, lot of private capital interest in DFW, again, assuming a leveraging opportunity off of the Houston-Dallas proposition. So I'll stop there and say that probably is the answer. Thank you. Uh, sure, I, I, and I appreciate uh, Bill's perspective there, but from my perspective, that, yeah. and we all know that the problems that we have in traffic are intra-city, not inter-city, and to the extent that we have a traffic problem between Houston and Dallas, it's trucks. So we need to be talking about how to move the freight, because if we take the freight off of the highways, we will solve most of our traffic problems. And so from our standpoint, this is a misguided attempt to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, and and, and if we, as long as we continue to go after solutions, and we all agree that we need solutions, but we can all, I drive 45, I tell people this all the time, I drive 45 each way uh, once a week. I, I leave Leon County and I drive to Dallas, I leave Leon County and I drive to Houston. And I drive the posted speed limit with very little traffic until I get to the Woodlands, until I get to Ennis. That's the fact. Uh, and there's a lot of room to expand I-45 if necessary, but if we pull the trucks to the, to the extent there is traffic on 45, if we pull the trucks off the highway, we'll, we will we'll actually make a difference on the traffic that currently is uh, um, uh, uh, using 45. Now, 35 may be different, and I'm not, I'm not an expert on that at all. But, but the challenge is, I mean, the freight rail committee that I've sat on the last two years has looked at it. It is all about moving freight. You can't get them off the freeway. Where would you put them? Put what? The trucks. The trucks? The, the, let's talk they, about that. The only thing that can happen is 
a road gets wider. Mm -hmm. 45 will be expanded. There will be a freight a freight corridor. So what are you going to do? Just go more and more and more. And how wide do you get a road? And that also requires takings in the domain. I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I take exception to that because I think the I-45 corridor, I-45 right-of-way is wide enough to, to expand 45 significantly. I tell you, we spent two years looking at it, and people from across the state, there's a report uh, in uh, final draft that will be released probably in a month, and it's not saying that. It looked at all the projects that need to be uh, around the state to get things going right over Brownsville, uh, East Texas, West Texas. Four big states, and you just can't say we'll get rid of trucks. Well, the, 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 the volume of goods and movement in America can't be solved on our highways. You have to, by de facto, build what you can in the rights of way, but you would end up building more freight rail systems, not well, only wider roads, but, but more takings for we, freight. We've seen a greater move, and we've seen a move to these intermodal containers on the freight, and uh, perhaps we're talking about two major corridors the I 45 corridor and the I 35 corridor. Perhaps we should have more uh, use of intermodal freight rail Absolutely. along those corridors. Absolutely. If you look at when I ran MAR terminals in New Jersey, we had 40% market share of New York, New Jersey Harbor. We were all about inland ports. It was about getting containers off of ships from Japan and China and from Southeast Asia, from Europe, moving them quickly to people. But the volume of goods coming in 20 and 40 foot uh, containers is overwhelming <coughs> millions and millions of units. To build a system designated to get freight off of highways onto rail would require a lot more rail systems than moving people in a concentrated vehicle and between and Dallas and Houston. Trains and neighborhoods will complain because the trains are taking them along the cross and we're delaying them 30 minutes. That's right. I mean, and, and every time has, it's Everybody has a complaint. It's sort of like not in my neighborhood. But that's why you have to have lots of options. Well, okay, and I can appreciate the options argument quite a bit, but what I don't, I mean, this is a very narrow market. Um, this particular project by the... 12 million people in Dallas-Fort Worth. No, 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 no you're not, uh, let me finish. What, what you're talking about is, and by your own admission, you're talking about a luxury train experience that will cost the same as, a, um, as an airplane. Train ticket. for all people. I take exception well, here. Well, that, that, that came right off of your website. So, um, but we know that, that your, the, your pricing is going to be similar to that of airlines. And so we know that we already know the numbers of people that currently fly. And so we're talking about having to take all of those people out of airline, airlines to make it financially viable. And of course, what we've asked. Let me just say this. I don't, I don't know what his numbers are. And I think it's probably early to suggest what he took. But I can tell you from my experience in Madrid, it was just a little bit more than a, than a bus, uh, with one third of the time you get <coughs> And it was certainly a lot cheaper than taking one of the shuttles. And quite frankly, I wouldn't be sure we get on one. So I think you're, 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 you know, you're just speculating. I'm just taking it right it's from their information. Well, okay, well, I, I checked the other and day. It wasn't a luxury experience. It was just a little bit more than a bus. I checked the other day, and a flight on Southwest from Dallas to Houston, Houston to Dallas, was about, one way was, I believe, about $218. Do you have a sense of how your tickets might be? Yeah, so uh, Texas Central is going to deploy a strategy that gets butts in seats. We're going to have 400 empty seats that I have to fill every day when we start service. For business travelers, we're going to compete with the airlines. Our primary goal is to get people out of vehicles. To do that, we have to offer safe, predictable, reliable, but most importantly, productive transportation. Talk about entertainment, talk about productivity, and you talk about um, conversations, changing the way 
people travel, providing a more valuable experience. How will I price that? I want a, um, we will have a variable priced system. It'll be oriented to get people onto the train. Business travelers will pay premium prices, short-term demand, uh, peak hours, off-peak hours. This is a train for all people. We have a stop in Grimes County plan that will target uh, a large population, part of which will be colleges and universities. We want students going home on, for Saturday night dinner with laundry on their back seeing mom because they couldn't get home otherwise. They don't have vehicles. They don't want a three-and-a-half-hour drive to Dallas with an hour-and-a-half drive to Houston. This is about getting people on the train and making it affordable. We're going to compete with buses. We're going to compete with cars. We understand that. We're going to fill this train with people that want to ride this train, want the experience. And at, at this juncture, can you be competitive with a $218 airline? Absolutely. If we, can, if we can charge that, we're going to be more than competitive. Okay, okay. Uh, because, you know, some of the information I've seen, you're, you're projecting that it will cost 10 to $12 million to build the rail line. And then folks are doing the, the math to say, well, we have X number of travelers per day. And I've seen some theories that you'd have to charge up to $400. No, we don't. Our, we're, our average ticket price that we've used in our models, which we have not shared because we're in a competitive environment. Sure. Bill can talk to this how many different... Uh, competitive businesses have come his way trying to find information about us, but we're, we're looking at our models and we are, we are able to have a profitable rail system with an average ticket price well below what you are, are you comfortable with your $12 billion price tag? The hard, hard costs, the 10 to $12 billion of hard costs, uh, we're working through that process now. We will have uh, part of the $75 million that we raise will be used to actually firm up. Is this the right price range? Is this the cost? Can we get it done? Can we get it done on time? And if not, the private markets will say no. Because I, I do understand from some other high-speed rail projects that have been built around the world that the actual final cost is, you know, 300% of what the initial projected cost would be. So if, if the project ends up costing $30 million to build, that totally changes your dynamics and your metrics on what you have to Ticket. Agreed. With all due respect for elected officials and leaders of communities, as a private enterprise, we're focused on a very simple system with three stations. If you look around the world, what has happened is the idea gets generated, and a three-station system, a three station system expands to a 10 or 12 or 14 system, station system, and you end up having a very fast ride between short distances and a huge expense in the stations and the infrastructure to do that. And you're still planning to... Make the trip from Dallas to Houston in less than 90 minutes? In less than 90 minutes. Well, that like includes a stop in, in Grimes County. Well, I just wanted to add that I think there's also some very good, um, especially for us in the region, that are still in the non-attainment some good reasons to do this in terms of environmental uh, impact. Because we have less, uh, um, less cars, less trucks if they ever considered doing Great, just like some uh, and I think it'd be, be good because it'd be less, less pollution. It's safer. I was just going to try to go back to making a point with regard to having a discussion of this particular mode of transportation based on realities as we know today. Kyle, I appreciate the fact that you drive from Leon County to Dallas on Interstate 45, and today, most of the time, there really isn't a problem. But the fact is, this discussion is not about today, and it's not about next week. This discussion in this state, in terms of meeting transportation need, 
really needs to be focused on 10 years out and 20 years out and 30 years out. And this sort of infrastructure, you do not develop overnight. Let me tell you something. You know, the, here's, this, here's this conversation we've just had. Senator, you brought it up with regard to Southwest Airlines and the expansion. Put this in this perspective. Southwest Airlines in 1992 had 38 flights a day between Love and Hobby. You know how many were there were a month ago when I looked? 22. Not 38, they're 22. Why is that? Airline travel is declining. No, that's not correct. They've expanded, actually, they've actually, expanded and they have the same fleet. That's exactly right. They have the same fleet, the same capital asset. They the same capital asset. 30 to 35% of an airline's operating costs are fuel. And they burn fuel. Airliners burn fuel climbing out. And guess what? They can fly from Love Field to Washington, D.C., get three times the fare that they can to go to Houston. We are not going to meet the transportation infrastructure needs of moving our citizens in the state 10 years from now, 20 years from now with airplanes. You're not. I mean, the fact is that if this is the right answer, you know, and again, there are concerns, legitimate concerns that you raise. And I really appreciate and understand that. But I really think this conversation needs to be future focused and not focused on your drive from Leon County to Dallas last week. Well, I'm, not, I'm focused on my drive. I think this is the same argument we had 20 or 30 years ago when the same, when the same people were trying to make the same case that we needed high-speed rail in the 90s. So we had the same. Well, we got to, we got to focus on the future. We got to focus on the future, and here we are, 15, 20 years later, yeah. and there's no difference. And so I think I think when you start talking about normative and narrative, you can't sit there and make the case that just because we're seeing this kind of influx of people now, that that's going to be the way it sustains forever. Well, uh, all I can say is the state demographers suggest that that's well, the case. Okay, the state well, demographers so, have been eerily correct since every decade since 1970. Well, we have grown, but we haven't had the problems that were projected at that time either. Inside the city, I agree with you 100%. Inside every city, it's I agree. not just inside the city. I mean, I go outside of Houston sometimes. The suburbs are just as bad. Well, well still I, I, all in the Houston suburbs. That's not the university. The train would not address that problem. It will not. Sorry, the train would not address that problem. Well, no. But the only thing it does do, though, is free up dollars. Because if you get people, I mean, it's the economic impact, and I asked him a couple of questions uh, earlier. You know, if you get people off the road, then there's less wear and tear on the road, which means you have more money to work on roads. That helps you inside your city, you know, in the region. So I serve on our regional uh, transportation policy. Always looking for more And I think we need to continue to do that. Look at more options, look at more public private partnerships, look at more ways to free up dollars to do a better job of maintaining the roads. That's what people want. Well, and with all due respect, Senator, 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 on that topic, you're, you're assuming that the private solution on high-speed rail succeeds. That's right. I'm, gonna, if, you know, I'm, I'm not a Debbie Downer. I mean, if, I'm optimistic. If, if it doesn't succeed, we're going to spend a lot of public dollars subsidizing. If it fails, it's going to need a government solution. You're worried about this giant track and system that can only run the Japanese trains that this company can no longer, is no longer even keeping up. Correct. Yeah, as I say, the, the investment in the infrastructure is the hurdle to creating high-speed rail opportunities in Texas. The operating costs of pushing a train back and forth is de minimis. The investment, so the asset on the ground is extremely valuable. The private market solution, if, if our investors take the risk, which they're doing, and find themselves in trouble, they'll find solutions. The private market will solve any future problems around operating 
profits and revenues. It's, it's, it's not a situation, nor does the state have the historical behavior of taking over private industry. And I do, you know, with all due respect to what Bill said, I do believe that um, this high-speed rail will have to be competitive with, with, with air because uh, people, I, I don't really view it as being a much different experience. It's not going to really be quicker than air. I don't know if you've had any feedback. I'm, I'm curious. From the TSA, for example, like what type of screening or check-in times would be required. I suspect that ultimately it's going to be similar to the airport experience. Uh, it's going to take roughly 80 minutes, which is longer than the flight on Southwest Airlines. So, I, I and once you get to your destination, you're going to need to, need to rent a car or get on some other public transportation uh, facility. So, so it's very. It's, it, it seems to be a very similar experience to the airlines. So you can't discount. Even if we take uh, take the uh, proposition that uh, air will not solve all of our transportation and commuter issues between Dallas and uh, Houston, we still this project would still have to be competitive with airlines. That's an interesting point because I mean trains in the Northeast currently don't have the kind of security measures you see at airports. Are you have you talked to the TSA? Yeah, we're engaged with Homeland Security and TSA even now in our approval process. Safety isn't just about moving the trains. It's about getting passengers through stations safely and onto the trains. Passenger rail in America um, has a different appeal than, from a safety perspective than airports do. Federal government leads all safety initiatives, and we will be market-leading, market-standard safety requirements through the TSA, working hand-in-hand with them. We will implement whatever measures are required to keep our passengers safe, in their opinion and in our opinion. And and you look around the world and you look at the risks that people face every day. Uh, we believe we can move passengers safely through our stations quickly with uh, minimal disruption. One of our models that we're developing is for our stations is no sweat and no lines. It's about how do you implement technology to not only move people well but also keep them safe at ways to use technology to provide additional levels of security. Bill, uh, so you're working on this extension to the, from Dallas to Fort Worth. You said that you were hearing from some companies that are interested in partnering with your public project. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's actually a really good news story when you really think about this. I, I think you put it, put it in this perspective. At least when I was serving on Transportation Commission in Texas, we the, the projects we delivered, when you think about it, I mentioned the Metroplex a moment ago, that region, $16 billion worth of projects in conjunction in partnership with the NTTA and, 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 and other local partners. We leveraged more than two to one public dollars for private dollars. That's how that infrastructure was delivered. And the same thing's true, the same thing's true all over the state. But that was as the, the big dollar yield was, was in the Metroplex over the last five years. That's huge. We could not have done it otherwise. We could not have done what we have done in the Metroplex in terms of meeting roadway infrastructure need without private capital. What I think you're going to see in all of these projects is, at least I can only speak though really to Dallas Worth Project, you know, we already have interest in other, not only capital, but also technology from other operating entities across this, this big world that are interested in the Dallas Fort Worth Project. You know, I mean, we've had, it's public record, I mean, we've had extensive conversations with, with the French who have successfully operated the TBG system since the 80s. They're very interested in Texas. They're very interested in the Dallas-Fort Worth piece. They're very interested in the I-35 court. I mean, you have, a, that's just one example. They are not the only entity that has been, SNCF is the actual entity, 
the parent of, of the TVG system. But these are all entities that understand and operate successfully high-speed rail systems across the world. They're interested in Texas. The reason they're interested in Texas, the reason they're interested in the Metroplex, a mega region, a mega region in the country, is because the dynamics, the population dynamics they see, the demographic data they see, suggest that this is a good business proposition for the future. You know, to Kyle's point, it's not today. And if we focus this conversation on today, we're making a real mistake. I'm going to open it up to questions in just a moment, but I wanted to ask the panel now. So, Texas Central has said they hope to be running by 2021, six years from now. Say they're running, say the Dallas Fort Worth connection happens. Uh, so, all the panel is, do you feel that it should stop there, or should there be a continuation? Like Bill just suggested going down the 35 corridor, or? I'll, I'll start first since it's uh, we're the source of the topic. I think proving the commercial viability of high-speed rail in Texas will generate enormous opportunities for America and for the rest of Texas. Once a Texan rides our rail, experiences the comfort, the safety, the productivity, we're going to ask the question, why don't I have this in my community? Why can't I get to wherever I need to get faster and this safe? The fact that we have no at-grade crossings is good. Cars always lose in a battle of mass. Trains always win. We do not want that great crossings. It's purposeful. It's not, it's distinguishing in a positive way, not a negative way, the uniqueness of our system. It delivers the safety that has been experienced by our Japanese technology partner. 50 years, zero crashes, zero fatalities, billions of passengers moved. It's a safe, reliable, productive system. Um, I can agree that, it, that to the extent it, it is successful, that it will change a lot. I just think that from our perspective, that the likelihood of that success is is very, very, very slim. And, I, and at, at no time would I ever suggest, and none of the people that I represent would suggest, that their private property rights need to be sacrificed for a project like this. And here in Texas, this is a primary tenet of our society that you have your private property and you can rely on the fact that it's yours. And we have a project that's being proposed by a private company that's trying to use the power of the government to reduce their cost. That in and of itself is a taxpayer subsidy. And we believe that needs to be that the, the discussion needs to be had and in your words, with a lot of accountability and transparency, and I'll agree with you one hundred percent. The problem is they keep hiding behind the cloak of a private company. As he said, we've got to have we got confidential information. Well, that's that's kind of contrary to accountability and transparency. So if we're not having accountability and transparency, it's very problematic when you start talking about people having to sacrifice their private property rights for a project that may that only may succeed, where the where the odds are stacked against them. Um, with zero accountability and transparency. If you were going to build a pipeline, you'd have to go in front of the Railroad Commission. If you were going to build a power line, you'd have to go in front of the PUC. If you want to build a railroad in the state of Texas, you go to the FRA. And guess what? Last time I checked, the FRA is not in Texas. And they are not focused on issues for Texas. They're, they're focused on federal government issues. And that's hugely problematic when you're talking about a project of this size and scope and damage to people's property and their property values. 
So that, that kind of would be wrapping it up. So from my standpoint, um, if we're going to be talking about moving people, and I all agree that we need to move people when, it needs, when, it's, when the time is right, we know that culturally the state of Texas chooses cars. As you said, everybody wants roads. Rail is not on the priority list for most people, and, and, it, and that may not be the, the same way for the future. I, I'll agree with that. But uh, currently that's what it is, and I would never want to sacrifice people's private property rights for the, for the name of this progress. I think your question was, does it extend? I think it's logically, I think it would. It's really the triumph of the original, you know, Houston, Dallas, uh, San Antonio makes a lot of sense. Uh, if it works, and I think that it will, you know, I'm, I guess I'm optimistic, so we're not bigger down there. So I have to be hopeful it's going to succeed. Uh, and I think you'll then see probably either something going down the river and battle or the way of uh, some of the management to work El Paso. I think either I think it can grow. Uh, I think it needs to start somewhere and I think the current plans is a good start. Yeah, on this question, but also next session, what are you what are you are you hopeful stopping this project? What, I, what I'm hopeful in doing, and, and I'll answer your first part of your question, what I'm hopeful in doing is to make sure that the district that I represent in the Texas legislature is, is properly treated and its concerns are addressed through the construction of this project if it comes to fruition. I mentioned earlier about the berm and the fencing, etc. That will have a dramatic effect on my county. My county is immediately adjacent to and just south of Dallas County. Uh, the full length of this, this line will, it will pass the full length of my county. Uh, and if there's a second line built, depending upon whether, if it starts in Dallas, that second line will also pass through my county. To my knowledge, I would represent the only county in Texas that would be bisected by two high-speed rail lines. It could terminate uh, in Fort Worth or somewhere in the mid-cities in, in second line. It could terminate in one of those other locations so that it avoided Ellis County. But... What will effectively happen by that, you have to think about that, that's going to create a wall, an artificial wall throughout my county that uh, you can cross it here, then you gotta drive five more miles to cross it again, or you gotta drive it five more miles to cross it again. And we think, in my area, that that will be, uh, have a, a neg very negative effect on, on development of property. We're changing from uh, rural to suburban, and then areas are changing from suburban to urban. And if you have this rail line in the way, it's going to become much, much more expensive to get a water pipeline from one side of that rail line to the other, or to get a sewer line from one side of that railway to, to the other, or to get a major thoroughfare. You'll have to build an overpass or an underpass under this, underneath this rail line, or you'll have to bore under this rail line to, to move water or sewer or whatever across this rail line. And if any of you live in Houston, there's, there's even psychological barriers to these types of lines. If you live in Houston, for example, you might know that there is uh, a, significant, signif uh, a significant psychological barrier to whether you live or build or develop inside the loop versus outside of the loop. That's really artificial in many ways, and we're afraid that this rail line will create a similar artificial barrier. So my duty as an elected official representing that area is to make sure that those concerns are addressed. And that's what I'm doing. And that's what I'll continue to do in the next legislative session. And especially if, uh, because I'm in a very unique position where I could represent the only county that has two of these rail lines crossing it, 
I, I have to be very, very uh, vigilant in addressing those issues. So that's my intent. I did want to make, take exception to just one premise in his comments is that as a transportation company, we're about providing access and mobility for people in their communities. Unless your current roads are five miles apart, you won't have any blocked roads. We have the ambition to, we will, leave every public road open. We have the ability to close roads. So unless you don't have roads except for every five miles, you won't have to drive around the project. It's just not factually correct. Our, our design and provision for access for property owners and for communities and for roadworks are mandated by the government. We cannot take away access. I just want to get that. Yeah, I, I, I know we're trying to save a little time for Q&A, but I do want to address one thing. Having served on, on city council uh, there in Ellis County, I can tell you that in looking at the county map, it is, it is marked up with these future thoroughfares to accommodate future growth. It's going to be a very, you know, we're, we're similarly situated to like Collin and Denton, which also touched the Metroplex. We touched the Metroplex. These are roads that don't exist now, but they are on a 10 or 20 year horizon to exist. Major thoroughfares, six lane roads uh, that will exist that are collector roads, feeder roads, major thoroughfares. And uh, I, you know, it's part of my duty to make sure Absolutely. that as this rail line crosses my county, that those are thoroughfares that don't currently exist are planned for and allowed to exist without costing local government. I totally agree. And our job is to make sure we work with your planners to understand where those go and accommodate those. Bill, and then we'll go to Q&A. Anything else we've got? Oh, so. Yes, first question. Yes, would any of you like to speak to the idea of high-speed rail as part of a long-term strategy to reduce CO2 emissions by electrifying transportation? Uh, I'll start. Uh, first of all, that electricity has to come from somewhere, and in this particular case, it's probably going to come from a coal-burning plant in Leon County. Um, and, and then on top of that, you have to consider that the, the amount of CO2 that will be emitted during the construction will be very, very significant, and it's certainly noteworthy, and needs to be taken into consideration for any long-term benefit uh, that, that may take place. But but at the at the with our current Based on the current technology, we're going to be burning coal, natural gas, and using nuclear power to, to, to provide power to these trains. So, uh, you know, there, there still is CO2 emissions that take place. I think it's a question. And, and I, do, I do think that, the, you know, our general strategy is to try to move carbon emissions out of these dense population areas into more rural areas. That's why we build some of these power plants out in rural areas and move the electricity into our city centers. The problem is, is that uh, we're still going to have a lot of commuting to get to these rail terminals. People are going to be driving their cars or uh, taking other forms of uh, emissions, uh, vehicles that are generating emissions to get to these terminals in those congested city centers. So I, I don't know that it's going to have a huge... Well, like I said earlier, we don't have a huge... I'll address that with um, moving people on rail, on electric rails, is the most carbon-friendly or at least demanding <coughs> mode of transportation that exists today. Long-term, our U.S. energy grid will move towards a greener and greener supply chain. And that's something that we hope to promote as an electric rail company. And I think the migration from a carbon economy 
um, has started and will continue. It will take generations to move to a point where we can generate enough clean energy to power our entire industries and our, all of our civilians, all of our citizens. Um, but we're part of that step forward, as is uh, electric vehicles and other, other modes of um, transportation moving away from burning direct fuel vehicles. Yes. You know, it's really not uncommon for a private industry to take property for the public good. You can put pipelines and power lines and that sort of thing, so that's not really unusual. But my question is, Bill, we're on the DFW Airport Board, and I think at one time the airlines were kind of against the high-speed rail. Has something changed from the airline's perspective, or do you know? Well, I think I certainly can't speak for Southwest Airlines. Let's be clear about that. But the fact is that the industry has changed. The industry's changed in the sense that certainly in the state and in the regions where I live, it's certainly changed in the sense that with Love Field opening up, and people have said, you know, just just an aside, aside comment, the impact on DFW in terms of flight operations has been less than one percent. You know, which means that DFW continues to grow internationally, and Love Field is an asset that it's complementary. To, uh, to DFW, and it really serves the region well. But the fact is that, as I mentioned earlier, just the economics of of the of, of aviation is such that distance is money. Distance is higher fare, and at altitude, those you know those that capital asset is, is is consuming very little fuel. And if fuel is thirty percent or thirty five percent in some cases of your operating cost, it makes sense that what you're going to do is to continue to fly more long term. Versus short term, you get greater greater return on capital. I said it. It's about making money. At the end of the day, that's what it's about in that industry. And so I think that really is the answer to the question. I don't see that changing. And I think that that, that high speed rail over time will be will be a complementary mode of transportation. And I think that's the thing to to remember about high speed rail that it is that it is a mode of transportation that fits into a mosaic. You know, roadways aren't going away over the next over the next number of decades. Uh, the addition of rail really is creative to, to a good outcome for all of us. Just for those that don't know, Southwest fought mightily against a yep. uh, plan to bring high-speed rail uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and as of now, publicly, they've, I've asked many times, and they've said uh, they're not taking a position yet. And they've made a point of saying that it's not the same as being neutral, but they just said they don't have a position yet. Uh, I just have one, one comment. I'd like to clarify something. Uh, you made the comment about uh, use of eminent domain for pipelines and power lines, and this is significantly different. With a pipeline or a power line, you're able to retain a significant amount of the use of that property. This particular uh, project, you will not retain any of the use of your property. Uh, and so you, you're talking about a, a clear um, reduction in your property value to zero because you literally lose the ability to use your property. Whereas if you have a pipeline or a power line, you can continue to cut your hay on it, you can continue to, um, you can build within a certain amount of feet of it, um, you can uh, uh, run your cattle across it, uh, wildlife can traverse it, so you can continue to use that property of a pipeline or a power line for the majority of its intended uses for those, particularly in the rural areas, um, whereas this, you will, this particular project, you will lose it to zero. I, I think it's, we have, to, we have to make sure that we're talking about apples and apples, and that's not an apple to apple corn. Uh, comparison in our opinion. Uh, next question, anyone else? All right, well, thank you all for being here. I want to thank our panel. Uh,